The idea was to, instead of looking for longevity in a test tube or a Petri dish, uh, to actually find populations around the world that have achieved the outcomes we want, which is to say they've uh, eluded diabetes, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, many types of cancer, dementia, and obesity, and they've lived an extra 10 years or so, which means getting into their mid-90s without disease, so they stay sharp to the very end. And uh, we found five disparate populations. And then with another team of experts, we we sought to find the correlations. Um, and remarkably, you see the same common denominators no matter where you go in the world, and there are long-lived people. Hello, and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I am so excited to be here today with Dan Butner. A little bit of background on him before we dive in. He is an explorer, a National Geographic fellow, an award-winning journalist and producer, also holds some Guinness World Records in distance cycling. He's a New York Times bestselling author, and he is well-known for discovering the five places in the world dubbed the Blue Zones hotspots, where people live the longest, healthiest lives. And his articles about these places in the New York Times Magazine and National Geographic are two of the most popular for both publications. And I am so excited to sit down with you, Dan. I have to say, right off the bat that I've been following your work for a long time. I first found it during my early years of medical school. And I still have this photo of a whiteboard where I was really struggling to reconcile the medical system that I was learning in and this sick care model with what I was really passionate about, which is creating health and helping people live the most fulfilling, healthy, long lives. And I still have this picture of a whiteboard where I was trying to put concepts that I had learned through CrossFit, like our sickness wellness fitness continuum and a concept called salutogenesis, which I'm sure you're very familiar with. And then a lot of the learnings from your work in the blue zones and trying to wrap my head around what does create health. So I'm really excited to be able to finally connect with you and dive in and and learn about what you've learned from some of the healthiest, longest living people in the world. Well, be careful because people say I'm better in print. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I've listened to some of your interviews and I think you you do pretty well as well. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. Well, you know, the whole idea here, and this is almost 20 years ago, we began this journey. The idea was to, instead of looking for longevity in a test tube or a Petri dish, uh, to actually find populations around the world that have achieved the outcomes we want, which is to say they've eluded diabetes, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, many types of cancer, dementia, and obesity, and they've lived an extra 10 years or so, which means getting into their mid-90s without disease, so they stay sharp to the very end. And uh, we found five disparate populations. And then with another team of experts, we we sought to find the correlations. And remarkably, you see the same common denominators no matter where you go in the world, and there are long-lived people. So as you point out, we have a healthcare system that is deeply incented by sickness. Uh, nobody makes money uh, in healthcare in America unless you get sick, whether it's a pharmaceutical company 
uh, uh, your doctor who makes money off of procedures and you know you visited them, and hospitals which make money on you renting beds. So even though the people are well intentioned, you still have to pay attention. You still have to follow the money, and the money, like I said, yeah, deeply incensed for sickness. And what we've tried to do at Blue Zones here is try to um, help produce health. Uh, maximize the number of good years, good healthy years people have uh, by following the best examples from around the world. Mm -hmm. I have to back up for a second because I know earlier, before you started this research, you were traveling across the world, biking across the world. And so I'm curious how you got onto this question of longevity. Was it something that you observed through your travels or is it something you've always been interested in? How did you decide that that's something that you wanted to focus on? So immediately following graduating from college in an age when most people are doing useful and productive things with their lives, I, I uh, set world records for biking from Alaska to Argentina, a second world record for biking around the world, and then a third world record for biking the length and width of Africa. And th these were all completely unsupported. So we had no vehicles backing up. We didn't even have like a, you know, a cell phone or a satellite phone in case we got lost in the Sahara. So they were they're fairly aggressive expeditions. But along the way, I started writing for Outside Magazine and Sports Illustrated and eventually worked my way up the food chain to National Geographic. And uh, following those record-setting bike rides, I started a company that um, uh, solved ancient mysteries. And I had a full-time staff of 14 people and we had a huge subscription base. And during that time, I got very good at networking with top experts and synthesizing complex um, sort of the intellectual jargon or academic jargon you see in, in papers. We got very good at, at simplifying them and making them easy for people to understand because ultimately we're trying to solve, we were trying to harness the wisdom of the crowd uh, which necessarily meant make things easy for people to understand so you could ask their contribution. And uh, that was hugely successful. The One of the last uh, expeditions we my company did, it was called Quest Network, we stumbled upon a population in Southeast Asia uh, who were enjoying the longest disability-free life expectancy in the world. This was a World Health Organization finding that came out in 1999. And uh, we did a, you know, comparatively speaking, a superficial expedition there. Uh, and I was so enchanted by this, this mystery and the people there that here, here was a population, they didn't have any special genes. They had no diets, no exercise programs, no supplements, no CrossFit, I have to, hate to tell you. Mm -hmm. uh, but somehow they were vastly outliving Americans, you know, to the tune of in some subsets of the population, 30 times as many people making it to 100. And I go, aha, that's a great mystery. I got funding from the National Institutes on Aging to uh, see if I could find more of these longevity hotspots, which I uh, then coined blue zones. And then... Um, got an assignment for National Geographic. And this is back in the heydays of National Geographic, where you almost could spend whatever you needed to spend on a, on a, on an article. And uh, I was hiring scientists and demographers, and we were really trying to distill the common denominators. And uh, the, the, the story 
was one of the most successful cover stories ever. And it's now yielded. This will be Blue Zones American Kitchen, which I hope we get to talk about today. Mm-hmm. This will be the fifth book. And uh, many of them were number one New York Times bestsellers. Um, all of them were New York Times bestsellers. And, and um, you know, it just resonates with people because it's not a pill. It's not a supplement. It's not hocus pocus coming out of Silicon Valley. These are real populations that have achieved things attainable by everybody listening. Uh, but most of what people think yield longevity is misguided or just plain wrong. And um, I'm able to set the record straight. I love that. Can you share now what are the blue zones, these five areas, these five hotspots, and then what can we learn from that? I know you've distilled it down into the power nine, which simplifies some of the habits and commonalities among these populations. Longest lived women in the world are Okinawa, Japan. Longest lived men, the blue zone of Sardinia. Uh, The island of Ikaria, Greece, produces a population that lives about eight years longer than the rest of us. Uh, with about one-fifth the rate of dementia. Nicoya Peninsula, uh, lowest rate of middle-aged mortality in the world. They spend one-seventeenth the amount we do on healthcare. And then among the Ad- Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, California, uh, the adherent Adventists are living up to a decade longer than their uh, uh, Californian neighbors. So it's really an extraordinary, extraordinary population. It's amazing. And as you talk about some of the habits or the the commonalities among these with the power nine, maybe we can just start with uh, with movement. That's something obviously our listeners are interested in. And you mentioned they're not doing CrossFit, but they they move naturally and it's part of their everyday. Yeah, so they don't exercise in the way we think of exercise, uh, this sort of willful thing you put on your outlook calendar and show up to at a time. My team figures that they're moving about every 20 minutes. So they're kind of in almost constant motion. So their metabolisms uh, stay ramped up at a little higher rate. And uh, they burn more calories unconsciously because they're moving. You know, they're spending way more than an hour a day in physical activity, but they don't think of it as physical activity. And the reason is every time they go to work or a friend's house or out to eat, it occasions a walk. Uh, for many people in uh, the blue zones, they're still uh, doing, um, uh, pa- pa- they have pasture raised animals. So they're following their animals around, occasionally lifting them. Mm-hmm. And they uh, have gardens out back. All of them have gardens. So they're working in their gardens, That's which is j- low intensity physical activity. And their houses are filled with the uh, mechanical conveniences that have engineered you know, housework and yard work out of our life. So they're moving there too. And, um, you know, they're not getting injured, at least not to uh, rates that we are today. And and uh, their, you know, cholesterol lower rates are f- fantastic. Their blood sugar levels uh, until about 2000, fewer than uh, 2% of people in the Sardinian blue zone suffered from uh, type two diabetes, very low. Uh, they're not dying of heart disease. They do, however, get cancers and, you know, sort of the capacity of the human body, unless you're an outlier is about 95, you know, and they're making it to that. They're making it to that age at extraordinarily high numbers. That's amazing. And then moving into nutrition, what can we learn from these communities about what they eat? Obviously, that's a hugely important factor when it comes to health and longevity. And then maybe we'll we'll dive into the new cookbook as well. 
Yeah, well, I think the first thing is to unlearn nutrition. Uh, I think we're bamboozled and uh, we get too concerned about micronutrients or how much fat or carbohydrates or how much protein this food has. People in blue zones don't pay any attention to that at all. Uh, But they are eating. We did a meta-analysis, which is kind of like a worldwide average, went into all five blue zones, found dietary surveys for the past hundred years and then averaged them together. And the reason this is important, I mean, most people write about centenarians, interview a centenarian, and then uh, publish what they said. And that's irresponsible journalism, because you can't extrapolate from an individual to an entire population. You know, if a 110-year-old woman says she eats three egg yolks a day, you can't say, oh, I'm going to start eating three egg yolks, because it's an N of one. N of one, right. So, So... If you want to know what a centenarian ate to live to be 100, you have to know what she was eating when she was a child and a young adult and middle age and newly retired and currently. And we got at that by finding these dietary surveys that um, we found them as old as 1920. And um, uh, in all five blue zones and averaged them, I worked under the aegis of of, uh, Harvard's Dr. Walter Willett. And um, remarkably... If you look at that, they're eating 90 to 100% whole food plant-based diet. Uh, it, you know, contrary to, you know, what the keto folks will say, it's it's a very high carb diet. Um, they are uh, not the simple carbs. I think carbohydrate is the worst work, word in the nutritional <laughs> dictionary because simple carbs are the most toxic and worst foods we can eat. When that, of course, includes uh, white sugar mainly, but also white flour and, and um you know, refined grains of all sorts, but the complex carbs, the beans, the grains, the nuts, the tubers, uh, they are uh, arguably the, the, well, I know they're the healthiest foods, at least they're the the pillars of the longevity diets around the world. And this, by the way, you know, you asked, started the question about, talk, talk, talk about the nutrients of uh, the nutrition, you know, the, the, these irresponsible doctors, lambast beans and tomatoes because of lectins. Uh, first of all, lectins are almost completely neutralized when the beans are soaked and cooked. Uh, he didn't mention that. He's got a supplement for to, to, to counteract lectins, not surprisingly. Once again, follow the money. Um, but indisputably, the longest of people in the world traditionally eat a cup of beans every day. They have none of the, you know, sort of toxic effects from lectins. Meanwhile, they're getting proteins, folate, uh, over half the fiber they need for the day, just in that cup of beans. They do eat meat about five times per month, traditionally. Very little fish, maybe twice a week, small portions. Um, No cow's dairy of any sort. And when it comes to what they drink, six glasses of water, uh, teas of all sort, black and green and herbal a coffee, which is good news for most people, and then um, wine. Uh, They do drink some. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of research that um, discourages or suggests that uh, drinking uh, even moderate amounts of alcohol is bad for us. But people in blue zones seem to be drinking moderate amounts of wine, usually with friends and uh, with meals and making it just fine to a healthy uh, 90 uh, and even uh, age 100. Uh, on occasion. Mm -hmm. So many questions there. I think just uh, on the topic of wine, I think it's so interesting because a lot of what I see, you know, in my, in myself or in my patients comes with the impact of alcohol on sleep. And so I'm curious, I know a big 
um, part of what you've found is that there's a, a happy hour or, you know, wine at five. It's something that happens maybe earlier with friends, with food versus in the couple of hours before bedtime. Do you think that that is part of, um, you know, there's so much that comes with the wine besides just what you're drinking. Yes, I, I do think so that, you know, they'll, you'll see people having a, this is the Mediterranean blue zone, but uh, blue zones, Icaria and Sardinia. Uh, it's not unusual to see a small glass of wine mid morning, even another one with, with lunch. Uh, and then another one with dinner. Uh, but, and of course people celebrate there. If there's a wedding, people will literally drink all night long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you know, those parties are seasonally isolated and, um, you know, they don't happen every night. Um, but, um, yeah, I know what you mean about disrupted sleep patterns. Most of the drinking is, is finished well before bedtime mm-hmm. on most days. The other concept that I've is still something I have such a hard time wrapping my head around or reconciling is the protein intake. So I think just from you know, from different types of research studies, you know, across epidemiology, but also um, more randomized controlled studies and looking at problems that we have here, especially with things like sarcopenia, protein seems to be important. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on that. You know, these, like you said, these populations are eating meat, but very infrequently. Um, Is it just that they figured out the right combination of plant-based proteins that they're getting all of their complete amino acids or, you know, is it that there is some genetic variation in different needs and, and we're looking at just these five populations? How do you, how do you interpret um, sort of what you found with some of the other research out there on protein? Yes. Well, uh, you know, we've been marketed the idea of we need protein for a long time. It's uh, the meat industry does it, the egg industry does it. Uh, but if you Google the CDC, Center for Disease Control, you'll see on their website that the average American gets about twice as much protein as he or she needs. So first of all, there's not a protein deficiency in this country, maybe with some extreme athletes. And I know a lot of the people listening here are uh, very, you know, uh, very concerned about their uh, health and and are actually doing something about it. So um, secondly, people don't realize that uh, you can get much healthier protein from uh, plant sources. Whenever you whenever you have a bean and a grain, you don't even have to eat them at the same time, just the same day. You get all the amino acids necessary for human sustenance. Um, so, which is to say, a, a full protein. So, what I mean by that, um, you know, for the Latin Americans and you know our blue zone of Costa Rica, it was beans and corn tortilla, bean and the grain. Uh, in in um, Sardinia, it was uh, their minestrone, which is a daily food, which is uh, usually a few a variety of beans with some uh, a type of pasta uh, or a calfrigola or a um, or barley. So beans and grain, once again. Of course, in Asia, the tofu is very high, a bean curd uh, way. Uh, I'm sorry, bean curd, congealed bean curd. curd that that is. Uh, very big source of protein as well. And um, so it is misguided to think that you need your protein for meat uh, or eggs. Um, In fact, there's so many other negative things that come with that package, Mm -hmm. like saturated fats and hormones and 
pesticides and feces and things you don't get when you when you're eating plant-based proteins. Yeah, I think you made a great point there as well about just pesticides and hormones. There's such a difference in, and even when you're thinking about corn and corn tortillas and some of these populations versus some of the, you know, mass produced corn and, and products that we have here, there's just such a, at the end of the day, I just keep coming back to real food that comes out of the earth the way that yeah. it was intended to. Keep in mind though, if if you have an aversion to corn or soybeans, that for every one pound of beef you eat, it takes 11 pounds of corn and soybeans. So whatever the negative things you don't like in corn and soybeans, you're getting them aggregated by a factor of 11 when you eat, when you sink into a burger or steak. Mm-hmm. Or or um, trying to focus on, like I said to you, the difference between, you know, grass fed or pasture raised, you know, animals that were raised in their natural environment versus feedlots. There's, there's a difference there too. So fewer than... Five percent, less than five percent of all the meat we eat is pasture raised or grass fed. Mm-hmm. You know, so it makes people feel good, but it doesn't really happen. Right. It's hard to find. It's you know, it's expensive. So that's right. I, I hear that that pasture raised all the time, and then I went and looked it up, and it's just to such a tiny minority. That's right. Well, I want to talk a little bit while we're on the topic of eating about some of the habits around and rituals around eating that you find in these populations. And then, as I know, you've written a couple of cookbooks. Now, the most recent is American cookbook. So finding finding populations and people in the US who are who are doing these same types of healthy eating patterns. So what is it about the way that these people eat that helps contribute to their longevity? They tend to eat early in the, well, first of all, it's, you know, five cultures in, in the original Blue Zone book. And then this new book, the Blue Zone American Kitchen, it's five other cultures. So there is some variance. It's hard to, hard to make too much of a blanket statement, but a lot of the cultures are eating an enormous breakfast when they wake up, a medium sized lunch and little and no dinner. So it's sort of unconscious caloric restriction, but there's mounting evidence to find that if you're going to caloric restrict, calorically restrict, you're much better off uh, doing it beginning mid afternoon or late afternoon, and then waiting as opposed to skipping breakfast. In fact, a new study shows that uh, mortality there are people who are skipping breakfast have higher rates of mortality than those who don't, even if they're doing it under the ages of ages of um, caloric restriction. Mm-hmm. In blue zones, it's it's circadian eating. You know, they basically eat when the sun's up. And as the sun sinks low in the sky, they quit eating until the sun comes up the next day. And then uh, they, lo- they front load their day with calories, as humans have been doing for most of, you know, our existence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love to one of the, the concepts from Okinawa, where People have this saying, I think it's Hari Hachibu that you talk about, where they're reminding themselves not to overeat, you know, to stop when they're 20% full. Um, it's something that I've been thinking 80%. about a lot lately. Oh, 80% full, sorry. That's something I've been thinking about a lot lately and just bringing some mindfulness to um, the quantity of food that we're eating. Yeah. So you were feeling Hari Hachibu is a Confucian adage that uh, is often intoned before the meal, you know, instead of like saying a prayer, mm-hmm. you'll hear older people say hara hachibu. And um, sometimes it's manifested where they'll put 20% of the food on the side of the plate and they just won't eat it. But most of the time, 
when they're serving themselves, they 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 plate their foods with a quantity they know almost fills them, and then they put the leftovers away ahead of time. So they're not eating, you know, big compost piles of food. And uh, that really, there was almost no obesity in Okinawa before, say, nineteen. 19- 99 or so, you know, as they start adopting the American uh, f- food ways, um, as as they are, uh, their obesity is blowing up and their life expectancy is plummeting. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that Harahachi Bu is a good reminder. Other things that really seem to work at um, m- minimizing the calories that you consume during a meal is, well, first of all, eating at home as opposed to eating out, usually occasions consuming about 200 fewer calories than you would if you eat out. Uh, Number two, taking the TV and other screens out of the kitchen. Um, Cornell Food Lab has done really good research showing that uh, we tend to, we're watching TV to our meals, we tend to eat to our, our meal and we keep eating until the show's over. So, Eating with family also occasions better nutrition, especially for kids and, and adolescents. Uh, so that family dinner, something you see always in the blue zone, very good idea. And then, um, you know, practically speaking, um, having a junk food drawer, you know, we all like to bring our treats into the home, but if you're bringing salty snacks or packaged sweets or, you know, sodas, which is, you know, the biggest source of refined sugar in our diet, Put them so we can't see them. And, um, you know, of course, in blue zones, they don't eat that crap. Well, they haven't traditionally. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the less we can eat of that, the better. I love that. Now, in this uh, American cookbook, can you talk a little bit about how you found the recipes and what inspired this this book? Yeah, here, I'll show it if I can. This is it. Sure. Blue zone. It just came out today, and I'm really proud of it. Oh, it, seven it looks rest- beautiful. <laughs> took seven of us took seven us of us um uh three years to make this so wow. we approached this like an uh I worked for National Geographic and the photographer David McLean is their best photographer in my opinion mm-hmm. and um we've written several articles for the magazine this is like a 300 page National Geographic article that happens to have a hundred recipes to live to a (laughs) hundred. These aren't things where I cooked up in my kitchen in Miami. This was more of a work of anthropology. So so first we began by uh, at NYU in the archives, spent 150 hours of finding dietary surveys and anthropology studies. And my goal was to find populations where People were eating a dietary pattern that mimicked what we see, what we saw in the blue zones around the world. And today, except for the Seventh-day Adventists, nobody's doing it. But we noticed that if you go back about 100 years, uh, not among my ancestors, the Europeans, uh, but rather among the Asian, African, Latino, and Native Americans, we're almost exactly eating a blue zone diet, which doesn't mean they're vegan or even vegetarian. They ate a little bit of meat, but it was around 90%. Uh, and meat was usually a condiment or a celebratory food, but they were eating mostly beans, grains, greens, and tubers. That's mostly, you know, what they, mostly peasant food, cheap peasant food. But they had this ethnic genius, trial and error recipes for making these foods uh, taste delicious. And that's what I tried to capture in both the recipes and the photography and really highlight the, the 55 
historian chefs who we found from Maine to Maui and every place in between. It took us three years on the road to find yeah. this. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful book. If I may, if I may say. It is beautiful. I've looked through it and the, you know, the images are beautiful and I love that there's so much research and science and such a, you know, a objective approach that you took to finding these recipes and then celebrating the cultures that produce them. And it's so true. I think people are often deterred by eating healthy because they think it's, you know, not interesting or boring or the food doesn't taste good, but you can make it all taste really amazing if you, you know, prepare it in the right way. So uh, thank you for doing that. I'm excited to uh, dig into some of the recipes. <laughs> so I'd love to talk. I mean, I love talking about food. We could talk about it all day, but I also think that it's very telling that five of the power nine have nothing to do with food or movement, that they all have to do more with relationships and purpose. And for me, this has been a big uh, epiphany that I've had even in the last couple of years. I think for so long, I thought if we could just dial in our nutrition, our movement, um, our sleep, stress management, that we could find optimal health. But really, I think the true root of so much of our health and longevity is our emotional and spiritual health. And when I think about that, I think a lot about relationships, how we relate to other people and how we relate to a bigger purpose or understanding what our purpose is in, in the world. So can you talk a little bit about those um, commonalities that you find that have to do with relationships and purpose? Yeah. So, you know, if you look at the data on diets, recidivism curves, the, the most successful diets, you you lose about 90% of people who get on them in just seven months, and you lose about 96 or 97% of people after two years. So they are occasionally short-term marketing successes for people behind them, but they're always uh, failures. You know, notice this book is not called The Blue Zones Diet. Because if you see diet on the name of a book, run the other way, because it's probably and not to badmouth it, but the, you tend to do it at the beginning of the year and then you run out of gas in, in just a few months. And when it comes to longevity, if you're not doing it for the long run, and I'm talking decades, it's not doing you any good or it's doing you very little good. There's nothing you, you can do this month or this year that's going to make you live other than not die. That's going to add tack on years 30 or 40 years from now. You got to do it a long time. So the, the blue zones, my, my main corpus of work, I've been writing about diet because I realize our mouth is our runway for a new way of thinking about health, but that's not, um, and, and my, my day job, I have, a have worked in 71 cities to lower the obesity rate using these blue zone uh, projects. And people have to understand what the blue zone dietary pattern was. Um, but the reason food is helping people live six to seven years longer, maybe as much as 10 years longer in blue zone is because uh, their life is underpinned with purpose. Uh, their immediate social circle are eating the same way. You know, they're not barbecuing hot dogs and, and eating potato chips and slugging it down with Pepsi. And they live in places where the healthy choice is the easy choice. So this it's a cluster of mutually supporting uh, factors that help people do the right things and avoid the wrong things for long enough so they're not getting diabetes. 
and unnecessary heart disease and GI cancers and prostate and breast cancer near the rates or even dementia near the rate. And it's because of what they put in their mouths for the long run. I love that. One concept I know, I love all these Okinawan uh, terms and concept, but the the idea of a Maui, can you tell us what that is and you know where does it come from? Yes, it's a, a Moai. The way Moai, sorry. It. So it's a basically a committed social circle. And uh, they start as early as childhood in Okinawa. And, you know, ostensibly it's to support each other financially through life. You know, they kind of take up a, uh, it's usually five or six people. Sometimes it's up to 20 people, but it's usually a smaller group of people who uh, take a collection. They meet once a week, they take a collection. Um, and then if one of them, it gets in trouble financially or needs a loan or child gets sick or there's a funeral. Uh, they use that collective money to pay for these mm-hmm. extraordinary expenses. But what in- invariably comes up, hap- what ends up happening is these people become uh, really meaningful uh, friends to each other. And they're the type of friends who you can call on a bad day and they'll care. They're the type of friends who are looking after you every day. And, um, you know, we, we're living in a country with this loneliness epidemic, and we're not paying a lot of attention to how to overcome that other than, you know, gadgets on the cell phone, and which I don't believe in. There are some very clear lessons from places like Okinawa, how to uh, transcend loneliness. And it comes from trying to ignore all this marketing of superfoods and, and uh, supplements and focus on helping people connect in meaningful ways in a face-to-face manner, because we know that people are well-connected, live about eight years longer than lonely people, and they have higher levels of happiness and lower healthcare costs. And then there's no pill or supplement that delivers anywhere near those returns, but it's hard to make money on that. It's hard for a marketer to, you know, give you a quick fix, but no, these are the things that really work. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I swore there for a minute. I got a little excited. <laughs> That's okay. I love the passion. I love that. And I love how, as you talk about, you know, the loneliness, loneliness epidemic is, is a huge problem and how, you know, technology is a barrier there and helping us to create these genuine uh, human connections and how you talk about how many of these communities have, you know, six to seven hours a day of social interaction just built into their lifestyle, which you know, oftentimes for many of us now, we don't because we're sitting in front of a computer. Maybe we're having, you know, Zoom connections for six or seven hours a day, but it's very different. Yes. So I want to, you know, I I spent 20 years studying these places and we use this word lifestyle all the time. I don't even know what lifestyle means, but what's clear to me from Blue Zones is, you know, we tend to have a mindset in America that we're going to pursue health, that we're going to find the right diet and the right exercise program and the right supplement uh, regimen, and we're going to keep keep up with it. Mm-hmm. And, and we never do. People in blue zones, they don't have more discipline than us. They don't have a greater sense of, of individual responsibility than, than we do. They don't have better genes than we do. What they do have is they live in environments where the healthy choice is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. And my most of my books, the last one, the Blue Zone Challenge, for example, tells you exactly how to do this. If you want to get healthier, live longer, or even be happier, you do well not 
to try to change your behavior or to change your mind because that's almost always a long-term failure. But when you reshape your environment, your home environment, your work environment, your commute environment, your social environment, and to a certain extent, the way things are ordered up here. And there are there's good science that show us how to do that. And if we're really interested in fitness and longevity and avoiding these diseases, we will shape our environment. Uh, come New Year's resolutions, um, that's a much better investment in our time because it'll last longer. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about CrossFit. I know a lot of people here are in CrossFit. I think CrossFit's just fine. Uh, I, you know, I know it's often pretty intense exercise, but I, I'd be willing to bet the best thing that comes out of it are the social connections. The community. The, the, mm-hmm. the community, the people you go and you see mm-hmm. every day and um uh, you eventually begins with an acquaintance and it becomes friends and pretty sure you're celebrating birthdays together. And, you know, maybe one or two really good friends emerge out of that. And when I say a good friend, it's a friend. This is how you measure loneliness. Friends who care about you on a bad day. Mm-hmm. So your girlfriend or boyfriend just dumped you and you're a weeping mess and you can call them up and they'll care. Oh, can I come over and bring you some food? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of friend you eventually want to make. And, you know, you got to kiss a lot of frogs before you get the prince <laughs> or the princess who actually deliver that. But, you know, people who go to CrossFit, they they share a passion. They share a commitment to health. You know, they tend to be probably, um, you know, achievers and success-oriented people. And it's, it's, a good, it's a good social environment to marinate in. But oh, yeah. I, I don't think it's the weights. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think anybody who who does cross it would agree with you that the most powerful aspect is the community. And you see for so many people, they start and then, you know, the gym and the the people there become their, you know, their moai. They, you know, the the founder of CrossFit, I was used to say the best thing you can do for your gym is number one, care, number two, care, number three, care. So it it facilitates relationships of people who are going to be there for you on your bad days. And and part of going through, I think the intensity of the workouts is creating that bond. When you go through something difficult together, it creates a bond between people. Um, that's really real. I thought of that. it's good. It's, um, that's a good point. it's really real. And I think that, um, like boot camp. Yeah, right. And, uh, and, you know, so we've seen, you know, we see, I'm sure every gym has at least one story of the couple who met at the gym and is now married or, you know, people who have their, their best friends at the gym. And, and it often does start with exercise, but then, like you said, it's contagious. So now people are changing the way they eat. Now they're focusing on getting more sleep. Um, they're all these different things that, um, that sort of have a snowball effect. So I think you're, you're right on there. And I love your focus too, on the environment. I think that's something that always I've been frustrated about or seen is that there tends to be this blame game where, you know, oh, it's personal responsibility. You just have to make the right choices. But there is, you know, it's more complicated than just having the right information and making the right choices. It's the environment that we live in. And especially, you know, in the US where we have fast food chains on every corner and we're driving everywhere instead of walking or moving, it's it's often difficult to make those choices. But you have gone into, like you said, a number of cities and implemented these concepts in a very scientific way and seen objective improvements in in markers of health. So can you talk a little bit about that? What are some of the things that you do on these these citywide projects that seem to have the biggest impact? Yeah, they're called Blue Zone projects. We only go into cities that want us, that, that um, we actually, that we begin with an assessment where we interview the mayor, the city council, 
the uh, city manager, the chamber of commerce, the big CEOs, the superintendent of schools, all the all the public leaders, and we show them what we're going to do, and they have to sign a pledge saying they're going to accept us. And essentially, what we do is we reshape the environment to favor healthy foods and to disfavor unhealthy not only foods, but unhealthy behaviors. Mm -hmm. So then we have three squads. We bring in a team for five years, three squads. The first squad's a policy squad. And we have found, we have aggregated uh, policy menus or bundles for food that favor healthy food over junk food and junk food marketing that favor the pedestrian and cyclist over the motorist. Not to say we don't need cars, but all of our streets are made for cars, most of them. So uh, creating streets for human beings can raise the physical activity level of a city by 20% for the whole population. Wow. And then favoring the non-smoker over the smoker. And by the way, this whole individual responsibility uh, jargon uh, originated with the tobacco industry when mm -hmm. they were trying to say that smoking is everybody's right and it's their individual responsibility to not smoke. Meanwhile, they're spending billions on advertising uh, and as early as eighth grade to get kids to smoke. Um, and then we have a second squad that administers a Blue Zone certification program for schools, restaurants, grocery stores, workplaces, and churches. And to get certification, you have to optimize your designs and your policies to once again favor healthy food, natural movement, and social connection. And it turns out there's lots of easy ways to do that. Um, people, who have, uh, places that achieve a threshold, we give them Blue Zone certification, which usually brings them more business and, and um, uh, kudos from their stakeholders. And then a third squad will go into works with about 15% of the population to help them opt optimize their social circles, literally make Moais. We've talked about Moais. Take them through a purpose workshop. Uh, help them find a place to volunteer and then take checklists into their homes to optimize their homes. So you see, we're not uh, hammering them with exercise programs or diets. We're shaping individual uh, environments, the environments where people spend their day and then the whole city environment so that the 200 or so unconscious decisions we make every day uh, am I going to put salt on my food? Am I going to mm -hmm. grab for a water or a Coke? Uh, am I going to walk to work or am I going to drive to work today? That those micro decisions are engineered or architected to be easier, more salient, and indeed sometimes unavoidable. And in every city we've worked in, we've seen the BMI drop and we get Gallup to measure it. Healthcare costs drops and life satisfaction goes up. And at, at one city alone, uh, Fort Worth, Texas, about a million people, uh, our project saves them about a quarter of a billion dollars a year wow. in projected health care costs because we help them lower their BMI by single digit percentages. But the rest of Texas got you know heavier and le less healthy. And Fort Worth, who said, God darn it, we're going to get our arms around this, mm -hmm. um, worked with us for five years and it really worked. That's incredible. And incredible to see you doing it on that scale of a of an entire city and changing the environment. You know, I think there's a lot of, you know, individuals who are working towards change, a lot of individual companies, but when you can get, you know, look at a whole city and all of the different environmental factors that have to do with that and see, you know, the data showing how powerful that is, I think it's, it's really exciting. Thank you.
So I I have to bring up I I was as I was preparing for this and learning more about the blue zones and more about your work, I just ca- kept thinking about someone who whose life we I celebrated last week, John Y. Brown Jr. He was some he's my significant other's father. He's someone who sort of beat all the odds when it comes to what you would think of as a healthy lifestyle. He didn't really start walking and you know exercising eating healthier until much later in life until he was probably in his late 70s but one thing that everybody that knows him would attribute to his longevity and his health he just passed away just just a month before turning 89 was his positive attitude you know no matter what came his way he always kept a positive attitude and so i'm wondering if that's something that you've also picked up on in some of these centenarians or these communities, um, is there a, a trend towards looking at the positive instead of the negative? Yes. I mean, I can always say it anecdotally. I interviewed about 350 centenarians in my time, and I can tell you, there, I can count the grumps on one hand. Um, <laughs> they, they were universally uh, interested and interesting, uh, compassionate, generous mo- most of the time. And, um, you know, when you think about positivity, well, how can you get that? You know, you may just be genetically uh, wired to have a sunny disposition. Uh, But I believe, you know, let's say you're middle age and you're not sunny. And and let's just say I, I believe it contributes to longevity for a number of different reasons. The way you get a sunnier disposition is you make sure the job you have is fueling your purpose, your life meaning. And for most Americans, it's not. And, you know, many of us chase the almighty dollar rather than chasing purpose, that you're taking a really hard look at your social circle and making sure you're surrounding yourself with positive people. We know that that unhappiness and loneliness are all contagious, as as eating junk food and obesity and drug use and alcohol use, all contagious. So taking or surrounding yourself with that. And then, I mean, most people won't do this, but, you know, I I wrote another cover story for National Geographic in a book, Blue Zones of Happiness, where I took a data-based approach. And if you're unhappy and even unhealthy, the most statistically powerful thing you can do is move. Mm -hmm. Move from an unhappy place to a happy place. So if you're not finding yourself positive, it may be because where you were is it's not walkable. You don't have access to recreation or to nature. There might be a lot of crime where you live or untrustworthy people. And, um, you know, counterintuitively, the best thing you can do is move to a happier place. And the Gallup has the data on where that is. Boulder, Colorado, Santa Barbara, Ogden, Utah, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Naples, Florida. These are all places with a good clean environment with trustworthy people with a sense of equality where it's easy to bike and walk the easy access to nature this is what creates a positive attitude not you know going to tony robbins course (laughs) i love it i love it (laughs) i love the the idea that you know some people don't even think of that as a possibility of moving but you know if it is going to change your your happiness day to day and your fulfillment then it may be worth the inconvenience of having to think about moving. So I, I love what you said there. By the way, every American moves on average, I checked this with census data, about 10.5 times in their adult life. So you know, you can you can do that, uh, make that move deliberately and, and it could have a big impact on your health or happiness. You know, back 
you look at zip codes in Kentucky, for example, and the life expectancy is 20 years less than the life expectancy in in uh, uh, Boulder, Colorado, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's not because they're better Americans in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, it's, you know, they, Kentucky, they live in a, a sea of junk food and um, freeways and, and uh, you know, suburbs where mm-hmm. uh, very lax smoking laws and lax liquor laws. And, and um, you know, of course, you got all the freedom you want, but, you know, you only got you have 20 fewer years to enjoy those freedoms. Mm-hmm. And I didn't tell you before we started, but I'm I actually live in Kentucky. And I think that it's Oops. it's both. Right. <laughs> no, no. I think you're you, I mean, you're true. You're right. But I think we have to check it from both sides, right? You're working on making cities healthier and also probably happier. And then, you know, we can't, we can't fit all of the population of the U S in Naples and Minneapolis and Santa Barbara and Boulder. So we have to make our cities healthier and we can move, you know, in the meantime, you know, it's not a bad thing to move if that's going to help you. Well, you know, that's where the blue zone projects come in mm-hmm. because we take template, we, the blue zone project templates all come from these statistically happiest, healthiest places. Mm-hmm. So. so we just need to make those contagious so that all of our cities are that happy and healthy. Exactly. Well, I know we're just about out of time. I wanted to finish. I, I usually finish with three questions and I think these will be very easy for you given your, your area. The first is what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? So, you know, of, of all the things you learned, what do you think are the top three that you implement? In your top life? one, I, I have a few couple homes and they're both in consummately walkable neighborhoods. So every time I go out to eat or friend's house or the store, I'm walking Mm-hmm. Uh, and also easy recreation. Uh, number two, I'm very conscious about who I let in my immediate social circle. And uh, I haven't dumped my unhealthy friends, but I spend a lot less time with them than I do now. And number three, I start my day with a Sardinian minestrone mm. uh, from the Blue Zone Kitchen. And that was the the meal that the longest lived people in the family, in the history of the world ever ate, uh, the Melise family in Sardinia. So I start with a savory breakfast uh, rather than uh, cereal or bacon and eggs or something like that, that would drag you down. So those are the three. I love that. What is one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something that has been harder for you to, to incorporate? Getting eight hours of sleep. Mm, uh, that's a common night. answer. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could do it, yeah. but it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you, Dan? It looks like a hundred-year-old woman uh, at her birthday or hundredth birthday, surrounded by friends and family who love her, and she stands up on the table and sings "Happy Birthday" to everybody else. Oh, that's beautiful. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. I love that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dan. As I said, I've you know followed your work for a long time, and I'm. So grateful for everything that you're doing, not only to put this information out there, but help us translate that into healthier communities here in the U.S. Um, So thank you again for your time and for all that you do. Yeah. So the best translation I have is this Blue Zones American Kitchen, Mm -hmm. which is out today, in fact, and um, this week. And um, if you have any other, you can go to Amazon, it's there. And if you have any other questions, if you direct message me, I'm at Dan Butner on Instagram, and I personally answer all my questions. So uh, I love oh, to get to know you. That's amazing. And so rare these days. So that's great to know how to how to reach you directly. 
Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're the best. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.